0: Hey Clerics where ringmail this is Jay Murphy Vanishing Tower Press podcast blog all that and wanted to rebut some of the very interesting um comments on mapping and the map and the, is the map a real in-game item or is it more of as I like to interpret it uh of convenience for communication and theater of the mind. There were many practical examples given of using maps in real life and how that translates to the real life of our characters in game and why maps would be a real thing and how we use them. And the flaw in this rebuttal on my point that this mapping in game is more of a theater of the mind tool of convenience is y'all talking about maps that you go out and buy these aren't maps that you've made these are maps that have been made professionally to give you precise information on known locations that are just not known to you
1: purchasing maps of known locations interesting aside i am reminded of daniel norton's uh current outdoor survival themed actual play He has a side game going, The Mapper, where characters are going into the wilderness and pulling maps and selling them for profit. Um, In a player sense, this could reflect sort of a map school, essentially, where in a past episode Rick Stump had talked about establishing an adventurer school where other characters would. Purchase knowledge, so they weren't metagaming. They went to they went to adventurer school, and the other player who had encountered the creature in Lou Pulsifer's game uh, learned this information. So they traded information that way. Um, now, again, Daniel's campaign is a little different because that's outdoor maps and that's treasure maps. But you have the idea of. This map is worth X amount of gold, so I'm going to pay Y amount as a fraction for that map, for that knowledge to attack the treasure.
0: What is the substitute technology we're talking about in a fantasy world? We're talking about guides. You don't have maps, you have guides, you hire guides. Because the problem with a physical map is there's no guarantee that it's accurate.
1: Fun aside on the accuracy of maps, Maps in the medieval period frequently were not accurate in the geographic sense. That is, you would not have a a set number of miles between locations that you would know about. Instead, you would have representations of things you would see along the way. So you would have rivers, you would have mountains or other landmarks. Uh, In particular, I have a map in mind of uh, the continent, where above you had Europe, uh, and then on one side you had Asia, and on one side you had Africa, and they were simply blobs uh, with some labels on them. Uh, in the same sense, I'd be curious if the expectation for player maps would be the same. Less geographically representational and more uh, landmark, uh, guidance, guideline representational. Although, admittedly, that is an outdoor map that I'm referencing.
0: The other reason you have a guide as opposed to a map is because if the guide is wrong you can get your money back if the map is wrong you get nothing but be lost
1: it has a real sword and sorcery element to it though doesn't it first off with the untrustworthy map the you don't know if you're getting what the treasure is at the end you don't know if the map is accurate but is it worth the cost that you're paying You could technically do the same thing with a guide. The guide has an implicit value, an implicit accuracy, in that the guide made it home. I mean, you're hiring him after all. He must have been in the wilderness and back again. But who knows? Maybe he'll betray you in the dungeon. Uh, A trustworthy guide will get lost with you if you get lost, but an untrustworthy guide, maybe he just knows where the secret passage is and may slip out once you're down in a dangerous place. Trey, sword and sorcery.
0: Okay, so no one's going to buy your map that you meticulously made because no one trusts you. There's no way to vet the map. Now, if you have a map that's accurate, say, in a dungeon, it is now a treasure map. It's an asset, and you sure as heck don't want to make it easily read by anyone else. So it's going to be enciphered.
1: Thinking about treasure maps... In real life, treasure maps largely were not a thing. The pirate crews who would take prize vessels would frequently divide the spoils and then waste them in very short order. So they must have been playing Barbarians and Lemuria, but I digress. The important part, the one case that I can remember where a pirate treasure map was real... Uh, and I will link this in the show notes the map was not representational at all it was a cipher it was a crypt, it was a crypt. Uh, it, sorry child's yelling at me it was a cipher it was not a representational map at all but instead a set of guidelines on how to get to a treasure that was buried but you had to decipher the code I don't recall if anyone ever did Someone over at the Center for Historical Preservation of the Caribbean needs to memorize read languages one of these days.
0: It's going to be a complicated document that is um, not just something you whip out and start making uh, game decisions on which, where, and when you're going to go. And finally... As I try to put a nail into the coffin of any other point of view, no, really, just a rebuttal on why it would be logical to assume that, yeah, it's a real physical map, no, not so much, is getting lost, and let me just direct you into the many ways that we know how to adjudicate getting lost and just use one of those message methods for example the game master and the players are working off this piece of paper over the last couple of hours they've been exploring deeply into this labyrinthine dungeon you can't really use this accurate and meticulous little drawing that's been going on between the players and the game master and Say, hey, we're running at breakneck speed out of here away from danger, and I'm going this way, I'm taking left to right, and I'm going to find the door or the entrance out back out easy peasy. And even though you have a very accurate picture in front of each other, we all know it's very easy to say, okay, you want to go there to there, here's your chances of not getting lost, roll the dice, the DM rolls the dice and you either got where you wanted to go or you didn't and if you didn't then you gotta start figuring out where you are and then again begins the adjudication process relating to the map and yes use it as a tool to talk everyone through the situation but at the end of the day um you're not really talking about a piece of paper between each other that's been made by the characters in the game enjoying beating this and going down this rabbit hole as thoroughly as i can and i hope my, uh, my points have. Are understandable, at least. Thank you.
1: And there we have it. The gauntlet is down. What have you to say, map drawers? Piece of paper or a piece of conversation?
2: Hey, Taylor. Daniel for minutes. Keep calling in. A couple of messages, probably, because I keep trying to leave one message and it becomes very rambly.
1: Don't worry about it. It would fit in with all of my responses.
2: First, I'll talk about the ranger bead thing. I might have missed part of that conversation. That is probably my fault. I apologize. I'm a little slow to release these
1: episodes, but more so I've been trying to group the messages together in a logical way and to keep the episodes at about half an hour. If that's helping folks, let me know. If you preferred the longer episodes, let me know. I'm here to please.
2: But So I'm not exactly sure why Jason was having them roll for it. I feel like if you're a dwarf or any adventurer, and you're in a fairly normal dungeon, that is one that's not like covered in rubble where you're tripping and falling, and you can see a little bit because you have InfraVision. I don't know. I feel like I would allow them to use a ranger bead-type style thing and some pacing to do some at least light mapping. I would not allow them to just... Walk through a whole dungeon for a session, then be like, "Well, I should get a full map because I counted paces." That's not how that works. But let's say they're in in a nexus, and the dwarf's like, "You know what? I'm gonna go down this corridor to the north. I'm gonna keep my hand on the left-hand wall. I'm gonna count paces as I go, and I'm gonna mark, you know, in my head, however I'm gonna do it. uh, Whenever there's a door, I'll go, let's say a hundred feet, or until I hit a wall."
1: That's some player skill you got going on right there. That's awesome. I would not have thought to uh, approach it that way from the player perspective. You know, you you talk about the way you do it in a lighted dungeon. You have the referee say, uh, or or you say that you have the party say, okay, we go north, and then the referee goes, okay, 10, 20, 30 feet, you come to a T-junction. But that came at it from the exact opposite where the player says, okay, I'm the one who's going to give you 10, 20, 30 feet. I'm going to build out this kind of subway map. And that's what you would get, wouldn't it be? Because you think about it, this is uh, if I am measuring distances with my hand on the left wall, then that gives me uh, essentially a point map. And that's a really interesting prospect. Uh, You have what it leads us into another conversation of what kind of maps do people draw uh, I know that I tend to draw a vaguely accurate map I try to draw the blocky um, squares on graph paper uh, or freehand but I know other people who draw point to point point. and it's like I don't care that this hall is 15 feet wide I just need to know that it goes between the jewel garden and the kraken pool man you're getting me excited
2: I think I would let them do that and be pretty accurate as to where the doors were. Then they could switch sides and walk down the right-hand wall and do the same. Go back to that nexus point, have the magic user, whoever, open the hooded lantern and draw that piece of the map out. It would be incredibly slow and I don't know why they'd want to do it, but I think I would totally allow that. I think it's a good creative way to use player skill to navigate and to overcome something. Or if they had a map and they wanted to go somewhere with no light... They could count the paces if they remembered the map and move through the area with no light. Again, I would allow that because I think that that's just a good player skill thing. And I don't want to discourage that by making people roll for stuff all the time. Because whenever you have somebody roll, they could fail.
1: And that's Jasonism too, as I recall. If you know something should succeed or fail, or if you need something to succeed or fail, why are you rolling dice
2: no matter how good of a chance I have. And I think that that kind of thing, I don't know. I I just feel like it it should just work in my mind. But again, I didn't catch the whole conversation.
1: Apologies regarding the context conversation bit. Um, That's my fault. I had about an hour of calls and I chopped it up into three episodes. So that's my fault. But the way that you described the action, it absolutely should just work because the, I think there's two approaches. There's the one approach where, okay, I count paces, how many feet is it, and I draw my map normally as though it were lighted. And then the other approach is, which, which is what you did, which is, okay, I, I'm taking a more proactive approach as a player. So what you did, what you did was a great example of out-of-the-box player ingenuity uh, by comparison to what I think Jason had in mind, which was more of a, a gimme. Thank you for your call, my man.
0: Hey, Taylor. Pink Phantom here. Listening to your episode, Listeners Talk Mapping. I think if a character dies, that their notes should become rumors. So that, you know, whatever has been established, now becomes kind of murky. So if things change a little bit in the campaign, facts shift a little bit because other people don't remember it as well or because maybe maybe the character that wrote it down got it wrong. I mean they're not around anymore to to correct the record right so that would it, that gives the GM a little more opportunity to to shift things around to move things around to make things more uncertain and to put in that sense of what we know is not necessarily what we know that. That keeps the uh, PCs on edge.
1: That is an interesting proposition. I'm curious as to how we could do it, or how one could do it at the table. You could just take said notes and then incorporate them into a rumor table, but that—I don't think that's exactly what you were going for. So you take the notes and then burn them, or whatever. And then the players still remember them. So, but the, a person's memory is not infallible. So the oh, that's weird. Oh, never mind. That sorry, I saw someone dancing next to a guardrail, and someone I did not see the other person who was helping them make a TikTok. I guess. Yeah. Anyway. So anyway, the important part. Every the player is going to remember the notes vaguely. The purpose of notes is to spur memory. So if you take the notes and burn them or, you know, mail them to China or, you know, feed them to alligators, then by necessity or by nature, the player's memory is going to be a little foggy and grow foggier over time, especially if you can only play... uh, every other week or really even every week. Um, so, yeah, that, I think that the taking the player notes actually might turn them into rumors by, the, by itself, <laughs> depending, of course, on the cognition of your player. I'm going to have to think about this.
2: Hey Taylor, Daniel Pants, keep calling in. So you know, I'm calling kind of based on your reaction and calls' call, which I thought was super interesting and very insightful. And having run many, many games at conventions now, it's weird that I can say many, many, many games when I've only been back playing now for less than 10 years. But anyways, I probably run 20 games roughly at conventions. I can say that the games that go best, and of course, I've played in at least that many as well, are the ones that do have some kind of structure. Not necessarily structure as in this is how everything's going to go and you cannot go off my book, but that there is like some kind of a plan, right? And and usually this can be accomplished pretty easily with a very straight up quest, right? We are trying to go into this wizard's tower to find their spell book and get out before the wizard arrives back. They're only gone till the sun sets. That gives us X number of hours, however you want to do it. Just something like that, right? Or the thing that I do with my Sarnath is the city is only exposed for eight hours. So they've only got eight hours. And of course, the way I pace the time is that it wraps up right around the time that the game is supposed to end, right? So they've got to get in and out. They can do anything they want, but they've got to get in and out within that time period. Another thing that I've used before is kind of uh, stuff that has hard framing and kind of uh, I guess you'd call it like situational stuff, so basically like in Might to Slay a Dragon, there's effectively four quests plus the fight of the dragon, assuming they get to it, and what that means is that I just kind of cut to them. Like, okay, which characters went to go see the, the Elven Kings? You arrive at the Forest of the Elven Kings, and they're there. I mean, that's just how it is because that's how it's framed, and they've made the agreement when they've sat down to play the game that that's what we're doing. They know that we're here for four hours, that we want to have fun. Any player that would just be like, well, no, I'm just not going to go at all. I feel like the other players at the table would probably be like, okay. And that player would just sit there with their arms crossed doing nothing. Because if the whole group just decided all at once, we're just going to not do this adventure. I can't even imagine that happening. But if it did, I don't know. I'm not obligated to run them for I'm obligated to run the game that I said I was going to run at the convention. And that's what I will do. And again, that might sound railroady, but this is not my home game in a sandbox where people are building characters over a long period of time. This is a single adventure at a convention that you signed up for. So I think that as far as that's concerned, that's less of an issue. Now, as far as the completely random thing, I am curious. This is what I hope Carl will call back. That sounds really fun, but I wonder, was there a final goal? Or was it just, we're just going to roll randomly constantly and see, just have fun killing monsters or doing whatever the game might have been? I'm curious how that would play out because I have run campaigns that way where everything's really random. But again, there was a finished goal for the campaign, so all that randomness led to something. So I'm curious about how it worked out at a convention game, Uh, possibly because maybe I'll want to run one like that. (laughs) Anyways, great stuff as always. I'll talk to you soon. So there's the question. Carl, will you call in and
1: tell us more about the uh, procedural and randomized con game, uh, or maybe do a Geomologist episode on it. That might be a little easier, depending on how much you have to say. To that end, I am on your boat, Daniel. I will admit I have not run a con game, but I have run league-style games or event-style games in the past where you were under the time constraint, and honestly, you kind of have to time jump. You kind of have to uh, railroad a little bit, because, or at least I had to, because if I was running every Thursday at 4 o'clock... Uh, for a group of random people, I had an adventure that I could run for them, and that's what I had. So if they went another way, it's like I don't know what to tell you guys. I started you at the dungeon for a reason because I just don't have anything else. It's not my home game, and railroading in that in that uh, context, that's not really railroading because you're at the station. Uh, that's like uh, going to uh, the movie theater, buying a ticket for a film, and then walking around out back and playing basketball instead of watching the movie. It's like it just, it doesn't make sense. So it's a different experience. I think you tapped into that when you said it's not your home game, so that explains why you didn't uh, that's not something you would do in a home game. But at a con, at an event, at a league, whenever there is a, it's like calling your buddies is like, hey, I bought Tomb of Horrors. Do you guys want to run Tomb of Horrors? If they show up and don't run Tomb of Horrors, that's doesn't make sense so that's not not a I wouldn't I wouldn't consider that a railroad uh, that's that's just kind of player decency it's like yeah yeah good call thank you thank you for calling in thank you Daniel thank you phantom for calling in and thank you Jay for calling back to defend your honor thank you also for I saw you had left a comment on the Spotify channel now Uh, you left it a while ago and i saw that there was a button that said published episode i'm not sure what that does and so i want to give you a quick apology you jay and anybody else it looks like spotify may have appended a poll or two into these episodes now if you had voted in a poll or if you had left a comment and it went unnoticed I apologize. I have read them now. I have checked them out now. But to this point, I had absolutely no idea that those features were being added to the episode. So I'll try to go back. I'll try to may be better about not uh, producing some feedback loop that i'm not listening to i would absolutely hate for you guys to send mail to an unmonitored mailbox because i appreciate you i appreciate the time you invest with me the time you spend with me each of these episodes so in the meantime thank you for callers for calling in thank you listeners for listening and thank you patient people for your patience with me as i learn this own platform (laughs) This is all. signing off for tonight. Delve on. And that wraps up this episode of the Whispering GM Podcast, an independently operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This License. Some sound effects are retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit.co royalty-free music license. Others are retrieved from Pixabay, made available under the Creative Commons Zero. The music is Raw Power, licensed through playonloop.com. Parties interested in or with questions regarding the podcast are encouraged to reach out via the methods provided on the ClearXWare Ringmail blog. Thank you for listening, and delve on.